Welcome to Unwrapped, a podcast all about chocolate. Brian and I love to talk about chocolate, and we've decided to record our weekly chats and make them available. We'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you'd like to hear about. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud, or reach out directly to us on social media, myself at Chocolate Garage and Brian at Abandoned Coffee. Thank you for listening. Every time I hit record, um, I always forget that my headphones are plugged into the call and not necessarily into the computer. So then it starts playing the song that you want to get rid of. So, and I'm taking my last bite of dinner real quick. Let's see. Mm. What was dinner? It was a Snickers bar. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I just, um, oh, yeah, it's from your hometown. I we we ate California Pizza Kitchen. Oh, really? Do you have that over there? Yeah, they're all over. There. It's a. I, I. It seems very chainy um, around here, but I just. It was. I got a, one of the ones you can throw in the oven. So, not got very it. glamorous, but. That's so funny because there used to be a California Pizza Kitchen like a few blocks away from where I live, and it got closed down and got turned into some like really sleek obnoxious obnoxious like fancy bank because everything that's retail or restaurant here is just going the way of you know startup venture capital banking all that kind of stuff um but when you said hometown yeah when you said hometown i was thinking you're eating a poutine or something like i was like oh he's eating a montreal bagel or (laughs) i totally don't think of i don't think of montreal um uh, palo alto at all as my home which is weird sorry because it obviously is i live here um, there was a there was a place though in Cincinnati that had a really nice poutine. I say that knowing that I've never traveled anywhere else to have more authentic poutine, but we thought it was really nice. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's you know it's about getting the fries right, and then was it cheese curds? It was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And gravy, just like regular beef gravy. Right. Uh, it was. What was it duck fat gravy? Hmm. Nice. Would there, would there be some place to get some nice poutine when I fly out to California? <laughs> I'm sure there is. I need to research it. I feel like it's ringing a bell that there's some restaurant that specializes um, here in poutine. And there's also supposed to be a place in Oakland that does Montreal-style bagels. Um, but I haven't, I haven't sought them out. Is a place that specializes in poutine called a poutinery? Um, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to think of the ones in Montreal that I usually go to and if they're called that. Um, there's one that has like 24 types of poutine and I can't remember right now what it's called, but I feel like it's not, it doesn't have the word poutine in it. It's like all these different sauces and there's like a tomato sauce one and I don't even remember because I just get the classic one always. It's so mm-hmm. delicious and it kind of gives you heartburn. <laughs> it's so rich and clearly unhealthy, but so comforting. Right. <laughs> um, okay. What did we say we were going to talk about? We didn't. So we can oh. we can start with that. <laughs> so last time we were chatting about different places to get chocolate. And we were talking about uh, a few bars. We just started talking about um, the PBJ, Janduya, and Smooth Chocolator that you were tasting. Yeah, and that was that was two times ago. So the oh, in the last time we we were just talking about um, expectations in chocolate or um, running into flavor or roast profile and all of that. Um, and then what was our after conversation about? Um, oh, talking about all the different it, bars that you are disappointed with regularly. Yeah, it was well that, and then just a whole lot of things. We got we we talked about a good amount of stuff but yeah I, th- I feel like a lot of it was probably that and it's it's it was just it's just interesting I, and you know when you have a make and I feel like not a lot of makers are, are like this but you know Patrick and I feel like we we talk about Patrick every episode but you know Patrick puts out several different bars 
throughout the year. And there are there are a lot of other makers who have a have a pretty regular lineup. You know, they're they're occasionally switching more things. I, you know, that actually brings up the question. I don't know what the seasonality is necessarily when it comes to cacao. So I, you know, I've got a feeling for what that is with coffee. I know when it's, you know, there are some regions that can have multiple harvest cycles throughout the year. So you can almost always pull coffees from Colombia or something like that, Brazil, maybe. But then, you know, there's usually specific times to when you're getting coffees out of Africa or specific times where you're getting some really nice Central American coffees. But I don't I don't know what that is with cacao or the uh, shelf life is probably not the right word, but how long the, uh, the cacao beans will stay to which you can keep making cacao with it. I see some bars and they talk about they're, they're still serving bars that have, I don't know what, a 2015 harvest tag on there, 2016 harvest tag, maybe 2014. So when when I see a maker carrying, a, let's say, a Bolivia for over a year, a Guatemala for over a year, is that is that uncommon? Is that common? What's What's some of the background in terms of age? Of that cacao so it it kind of comes down to how it's stored so if you have optimal storage conditions cacao can sit for years and years and years i know that um, um coast, there's a costa rican origin that ritual was using that they had gotten from steve devries and this is like the class i don't know if it's a classic example it's like the most um extreme example i suppose and they were this is back when they were in denver and denver's at altitude and quite dry. So it was kind of the perfect place to store cacao. And this was cacao that Steve DeVries had gone and um, um, overseen the drying of in Costa Rica. So it was the bean that he was using back when he used to make chocolate. And then he had um, sold a bunch to Ritual and they were making um, some bars from it. And I want to say, I want to say they were putting out bars that for some reason, 2003 sticks in my head that they had this harvest that was like 2003 and it was, they were still maybe that seems kind of crazy. So I'm not sure if that's true, but um, they were still putting out Costa Rican bars. I, every now and again, Scott um, of Dallas food will post um, or not every now and again, most recently in the past year or so, he'll post a picture of that bar that is long gone. You know, they sold out um, in the past couple of years, but it was, it was going on maybe eight to 10 years that they had had that cacao. And that was not seen as a bad thing because it was perfectly stored and it was a delicious cacao that had been really fermented, in a, sorry, fermented and then dried by Steve in a, in a particular way. Um, and so it really is quite stable. Now, as for, you know, maker strategies these days, you know, nowadays there's Meridian cacao, there's, um, Atlantic cacao, I'm blanking on the names, but there's all these places that peep chocolate alchemy. I imagine some makers are also still sourcing from there. Um, you know, you can kind of just buy in small amounts here and there and shop a bag here and a bag there. But that's relatively new phenomenon. I think that earlier on, um, makers had to buy much bigger amounts and then just have that, you know, dozens of bags or whatever of a particular origin for the time that it took them to go through, um, go through it. So some of them would have an arrangement with some uh, with Atlantic cacao, for example, where they could warehouse it with Atlantic cacao and just take on the bags that they needed when they needed them because of storage issues and not being able to bring in so much cacao and store it in their factory. They would just buy a certain number of bags. They would stay with Atlantic cacao and then they would, when they needed them, have them brought to their factory and work with them. But obviously sinking a lot of money into a huge amount of cacao, that's the trade-off between buying in volume versus, you know, having a lot of inventory that you have to get through over time. So I'm not really sure how they manage all of that part. Um, but storage is definitely not an issue. Sure. Makes a lot of sense. I didn't for a, for a second there, I didn't think about um, the quantity at which they would be purchasing. And thus, it is something that just makes sense. They're, they're keeping around for a long time. But that is quite intriguing, too. The shelf life, that's something I didn't realize. But kind of getting back 
into just the, the, the question that you had asked me with that is so, you know, with Patrick doing a lot of inclusion bars or things that, that are really fun. And even though they're, it seems like they're similar year over year, uh, a lot of those bars that, that kind of revisit, um, when you've got a maker that you've landed on and, and that I just say Patrick, cause for me, that's one of those makers that I know just about every bar I'm going to be pleased with. So when, when you continuously run into newer, I say newer makers because I feel like oftentimes that's where you run into that. You know, there are things that just aren't quite there. Maybe they're still working through, you know, figuring out what they're doing. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you kind of have to go into production while you're learning sort of thing in order to keep it afloat. But uh, all that aside, it's, it just makes me wonder why sometimes would I continue to explore when I know that there is there are these brands that I can consistently go to and have a great experience and a great bar and you know I, I just, it's it's guaranteed. And you're speaking as a customer right now. Right. Yeah. And just, you know, with what you were saying in, in terms of, you know, bad bars running into bad bars, I just sometimes I wonder why not just, you know, lately I've been wanting to dive into something. Uh, I, I've kind of had a itch to explore a little something new. But whenever I go to my stash of chocolate, I'm usually pulling out some of the same makers and some of the same bars because I've found a lot of things that I've liked. And I kind of just carry those. I kind of just make sure I have some of those. And then when I need more, I order more of them because I just, I know that they're enjoyable. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I realize I never buy chocolate as a, as a citizen, you know, I, whenever I buy chocolate, it's, it's almost always because I want to know and be on top of all the different makers and brands. And so um, I'm not sure how I would make choices as a customer. I probably do what you're doing. I probably, you know, stick with the ones that I know are really great and then and then not explore too, too much because, well, given my experience, if I, you know, if I didn't have the chocolate garage and I became a customer right now, I would just assume that most, most stuff is not going to meet my expectations. You know, when I, for example, I'm going to, I'm going to France and Switzerland this summer and, you know, in past years when I've gone, in the summertime, I just don't even bother eating chocolate or sourcing chocolate when I'm there. If I go to a grocery store or go to a specialty sort of health food store where they might have slightly better selection of chocolate, um, I don't even bother cho buying chocolate because I know it's just going to be, I, I kind of know what it's going to taste like. It's going to be kind of boring and I'm, I'm not that interested in eating chocolate only that I want to lower my standards <laughs> in a sense. I guess I'm more, you know, I lower my standards in other areas. Like I will eat junky cheese, but will not eat junky chocolate. I guess I'm just not interested. Um, <clears throat> so it is a hard, it is a challenge. And I think that if I look at how customers behave at the chocolate garage, they, they have their favorites, they have their, their staples that they love that they keep coming back for. And then the nice thing for them is that you know, we bring in new stuff. And if we've brought it in, it means that it's, it's good, you know, and then they get to taste it and see, well, not only is it good, but it is my, my flavor profile or my kind of particular preference um, or not. So it's a safe environment for people to experiment where there's, there's no real risk, but that's pretty unusual. And so for you, especially if you're shopping online or you're shopping from where you are, there's, there's no way to know. And, and actually that brings me to the topic of like, sites where people review chocolate um you know the i mean the first one that comes to mind that has the deepest and you know longest running uh reviews is the c-spot i don't actually even know if i imagine that mark is still doing um reviews i just haven't been on there for a little while to to read his reviews i'm not sure how helpful they are all the time i mean i usually read them to to have a really good laugh because he's he cracks me up um and sometimes offends me <laughs> Um, but, but, um, are there any sites that you're using or that you go to, to see and see what people say that you trust or feel like that person who's reviewing is, is, um, is on the same page as you? When I first got into it, I was looking at chocolate codex mm -hmm. and I, 
And I think this goes back to the older conversation we had in regards to talking with Colin at Rogue Chocolatier about, you know, how he visualizes taste. And for some reason, I think just breaking things down into um, charts, graphs, those sorts of things, you know, we see flavor wheels or, you know, the sliders of, or, or just selections of how how was the body being able to break things down into um, pockets that uh, uh, references, I guess you should say, and then bringing all of those together in, re- in regards to flavor or body, snap, texture, whatever. And then say the bar, it, it presents itself like this with just like a short little bit about it. I mean, everything they did was great. The photos were nice, which wasn't as big of a deal as just being able to kind of have a brief exploration of the bar and then to kind of get some understanding of what it, it might be like. And and I wish there was more content there. I almost even contacted to see if if the system was something that I could use and continue just to write with with my own exploring with bars because I just found it so intriguing. Did um did Chocolate Codex stop doing those reviews? I'm not exactly sure. I haven't seen anything in a long time, but I thought I had reached out maybe a month or so ago in that it seemed like maybe just other things were going on, but there is or was going to be more. And it makes sense. I mean, I was the same way where it came to coffee. When I, when I first started my website, I was talking about coffee much the same way. And then things just kind of happen, you know, especially if it's something that you're not getting paid to do, you know, right. it, it's easy for things that you are getting paid to do to take precedence over things that you're not when you're, you know, it's just a, a hobby or an interest or whatever. Yeah, I got the impression when I met Jasmine that this was something that um, I, I didn't have the impression that it was um, a hobby. I think it was something that both of them were really passionate about. And I, it just wasn't very clear for me yet how that was all going to work out in terms of, you know, there needs to be some business model, either a totally other business that supports working on this while it's growing or um, some way of making money. So I wasn't sure if there was going to be sales that came from it. And I've um, I've stopped paying attention so much um, in the past few months. As I've told you, I've been trying to spend less time on Instagram and less time in general um, doing that. So I feel like I'm uninformed about Chocolate Codex, but I did enjoy their their uh, the work that they were doing. I feel like they're up in Vancouver, British Columbia. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, any other sites that you've used? Have you ever been on the C-Spot and checked it out? I have, I think, but mainly just like looking while well, I've been looking at bars. I, I would have to go to the site again to just kind of refresh. Let me look it up right now. To yeah, kind that, of refresh that's... in my mind what it what it looks like. I know I have been to it before. It's a, it's an unbelievable um, treasure trove of information. I mean, there's the reviews, but that's just one part of it. And then, you know, there's just so much information about everything you could imagine around cacao and chocolate. Um, Mark is deeply knowledgeable and had put up like the uh, all the different varietals. You know, originally we were talking about three, you know, Trinitario, Forestero, and Criollo. And then with the USDA coming up with, um, you know, sequencing all well, the Theobroma cacao sequence being published, think it was mars that did it um and then and then they all of a sudden had um far more diversity than they realized within for example forestero and that was the place where um i would go to to see all the different names of the of the varietals now that we have access to which just really makes chocolate so complicated it's interesting to see that most makers have not gone to further refine their definitions certainly francois palu still refers to just those three (laughs) Um, even though it's outdated and it's far more complex than that. But yeah, it's an amazing site full of unbelievable information. Um, I mean, yeah, this believable. is fantastic. <laughs> this yeah. is great. Why, why is, do, does, is there somewhere on here that talks about how they reach the scores that they do? And why is something like that not used for more accessible grading or understanding of, chocolate or cacao 
Is it is it marked out of how does he mark it again? Is it out of a hundred or is it out of ten? Oh my, I, it I would assume a hundred because there's like the the appearance is out of five, aroma is out of ten, mouthfeel is out of fifteen, flavor mm-hmm. is out of fifty, using to the tenths. Um, quality is out of twenty, also using tenths. It looks like at least on this most recent one that I saw. So yeah, I'd say that's pretty detailed, and then the low, medium, high for, you know, all these other length, structure, complexity, intensity, roast, bitterness, acidity, sweetness, CQ. Wow. A lot of information there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, um, you know, I think in some ways the system is, is, is great. And I think that um, in many ways, and Mark isn't the only one to review Mark Christian. There's others who, I don't know anymore. I haven't looked in a little while, but there used to be some other people who would also review these various bars and it's a daily review. So there's a review that comes out every single day and it's been going on for many, many, many years. Um, But, you know, Mark has a particular way of writing where he just like, just, I mean, it's kind of like the way I write my newsletters is very spontaneous, but maybe with absolutely no filter. And, um, and so sometimes no, no stopping point. Myself or Mark? <laughs> oh, either either one, either one. <laughs> well, well, the thing about Mark is I that, meant I meant Mark, but um, the thing about Mark is that sometimes I mean I I I have said this to him many times. It's like he kind of shoots himself in the foot sometimes because you know it's an amazing site with so much information. But if you're like if you're absolutely like rude about how you describe certain things in ways that most people would be like okay that's just totally crossing the line then it kind of it kind of um it turns people off and they're kind of like this is crazy like how can you write something so horrible and you know as a tasting note (laughs) and so sure that's that's why i say i find it fun to go and read because i I can't believe sometimes the things he writes and i think it's kind of hilarious but but I feel like because of that, um, it's harder for folks to really point to it all the time because, I don't know, we have certain things or ways that we behave um, professionally and even personally. And so, um, and and Mark, you know, Mark likes to break those rules, which is fine. And it doesn't take away from how, you know, the important body of knowledge that is on that site. But I think it it's hard. I used to point to his site on my uh, in my newsletter every now and again to reference certain things when I was telling people in my newsletter, you know, what was going on with various things. And I would have to kind of like also add a line of like something to 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 ask people to look past certain warts to the system. Anyways, so yeah, so there's a C-spot and I guess um, Chocolate Codex, there was 70%.com um, that for a very, very long time was doing wonderful reviews. Uh, and I think that they aren't so much anymore. They're doing longer pieces on various chocolate makers. And of course, Martin is doing other work around sort of chocolate sommelier classes, right? So learning formally how to do chocolate tasting. And I think there's there's two levels that have already happened. And I think the third level is shortly to come. Um, but people are are taking these classes to learn how to how to taste chocolate and learn all the basics around cacao and chocolate making and flavors and that sort of thing. Have you, have you seen that at all? I have not. Mm. Um, yeah. Sometimes I think to myself, gosh, should I go take a class on chocolate tasting? <laughs> um, it's funny because it's wonderful to see structures coming about within the industry, right? Where we're formalizing certain things like of course, FCCI formalizing how you grade cacao and then, you know, establishing chocolate sommelier as an idea and as a phenomenon and and sort of um, uh, building out a system for people to understand how we assess chocolate and all that. So it's, it's exciting to see those sorts of things come about, but I don't, I I probably should go do that at some point if I'm in the right place at the right time um, and talk to Martin about attending that because um, it's, yeah, it's important. And, and I guess, I would want to. I would want to. I. I would want to see what it's about um, to better understand how how they're looking at chocolate. Anyway, and to educate myself, of course. Um, I'm very much a self-taught chocolate taster, uh, just with lots and lots of experience of tasting lots of things over the years and and paying attention, you know, and 
noticing what you taste, much like you do. I guess there's um, I, yeah, I guess I'm I'm poorly uh, read right now to to discuss uh, more of the of the folks in place that are doing different things because um, it seems like there's a lot, a lot, a lot of folks right now who are blogging and are sort of hobbying. Um, I remember that there was this site that came up a few years back that was trying to do um, online sales for chocolate and. At some point, so they're going through, I was just observing them because I was curious to see how that was going to evolve for them. And I noticed that, you know, they did all the classic business moves of, you know, setting up a site and having the bars there and sort of sourcing some chocolate, but doing it in a way that didn't require, it was really testing the market. It was a larger organization that was funding this online craft chocolate, sort of craft chocolate only store and um, online store. And, and then they, you know, they did the AdWords on Google and then they eventually did the whole um, target bloggers, so send them chocolate for free and have them write about where they got it and what the bars were like and try to promote themselves that way. So at that point, I remember realizing, gosh, there's a whole lot of bloggers out there. Um, And it wasn't just chocolate bloggers, but I think they also sent it to, which actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense, sent it to um, people who bake with chocolate and make pastries and, and stuff with chocolate. So, um, but I haven't really been paying very much attention to that lately. Right. What else? I'm actually, I'm getting pretty excited right now to go to Switzerland because I'm going to be bringing folks through a tour, uh, mostly in the Swiss German part, to visit a few different chocolate makers in Switzerland. And it's interesting to see how there's, of course, the classic, you know, everyone knows about Swiss chocolate. So there's these really old classic companies that like Lint, of course, and um one that's less well known because it hasn't really left Switzerland so much, they're just starting to break into the US market, is called Cahier, which is C-A-I-L-L-E-R. And um, they were bought by Nestle some time ago. But I remember when I was growing up, it was, you know, it was a, a, one of the many independent Swiss brands that existed. Um, so Cahier now is owned by Nestle and is sort of their little, um, I was going to say artisan, but artisan on a different level, like on a Nestle level, it's their sort of smaller factory that they use for folks to come and tour and see what the chocolate making experience looks like. It's a really old factory with old machinery. So it's really um, charming and quaint. I think I've not actually been to the Cahier factory, but that's one of the places we're going to visit. But then you see this new sort of um, really new like craft chocolate in the United States starting to happen in Switzerland with um you know, the two-person operation, really being thoughtful about where they're getting their beans and then just, you know, handcrafting and literally putting together um, bar by bar really high-quality chocolate with really carefully sourced cacao. So it'll be really interesting to to see the spectrum. And unlike the United States, where there's, you know, hundreds of bean-to-bar makers at this point in the United States, um, there's very few um, in Switzerland and even fewer. So there's very few small scale really high quality makers and of the few that there are even fewer are doing their own bean to bar so there's there's this um this movement towards uh having a a larger company make your chocolate for you and then branding it and so there's a few Mm -hmm. brands like that in switzerland that are so we're the first sort of smaller scale makers in a sense I, i don't know if you call them makers because they're they're outsourcing the making and then they're focusing on getting their product to customers and educating folks, which frankly makes a lot of sense because if you're making from from scratch, that's, you know, it's enough of a job. And then to have to try to find a way to get it into people's mouths and educate the public is hard. And I think it's especially hard in Switzerland because the bar, I guess I usually say the bar is so low here, like it used to be so low here, but the bar is pretty high in Switzerland in terms of People are used to good chocolate and they're used to it not costing much at all. And so you turn out a you turn out a bar that's not two or three francs, but is ten or fifteen francs. You know, a lot of the Swiss are just like, that's ridiculous. Why should it cost so much? <laughs> so it's a bit bit of a challenge, but I think it'll be really neat to to see the different ends of the the different ends of the spectrum of of chocolate making. Uh, the company Milk Boy, they're from Switzerland, aren't they? Do you know anything about them? Yeah, I feel like they are. Um, I I um I don't know much about them. I know that I've been seeing them at some of the conferences um, at the FCIA and 
their sponsors, I suppose. But I don't, I haven't looked into their history, their family history to see like who owns them or because I certainly don't remember any chocolate in Switzerland when I was growing up that was called Milk Boy. Um, there's Milka, which was a brand, but um, but Milk Boy, I don't know. So I wonder if that's like an, um, an American dressing, you know, like a, a branding mm. for the US market. I'm not sure. Right. Have you tasted their stuff? I have not. No, I saw them at Northwest, but I did not try them. I have this wonderful um, app on my phone that I use at the grocery store that makes me an annoying customer. Um, it's called Buycott, B-U-Y, Cot, like boycott, but B-U-Y. And you can scan any um, barcode and it will tell you whether it's in line with your values. And so you can determine what you care about. If you care about GMO and you want to know that something isn't or that, you know, that a company supports the labeling of genetically modified organisms or um, it could be anything. It could be child, it, I was going to say child cruelty. I meant animal cruelty, but there's also the child cruelty part, the child slavery. So you can decide what things you care about until you elect the campaigns that you care about. And then when you scan any food, it'll tell you that it's either conflicting or supporting with the campaigns that you like. So I was looking to see if Milk Boy showed up there because one of the really cool campaigns, the one that I'm interested, one of the ones I'm interested in is the family tree of a company. Um, so a great, a really funny example. So there's this wonderful yogurt. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called, the brand is Liberté. It's like Liberty with an E at the end with an accent on it. And it's a Montreal brand that I used to eat all the time when I lived in Montreal and is totally decadent. They do like 8% milk fat and they do really nice flavors and it's delicious. It's like a dessert. Um, and years ago, I was excited to start seeing it in uh, around here in California. And then I had heard that there had been a sale and I wasn't sure if it was Yoplait or Danon who had bought uh, Liberty. And, and anyways, so I, it showed up the other day in Whole Foods and I was all excited. And I looked at it very suspiciously because I knew there had been a sale. And um, as I looked at it, it was amazing. The marketing was so, and this is has parallels to chocolate because this is also happening in chocolate and and will continue to happen in chocolate. But I looked at the whole package and it was so cleverly done. You know, they talked about Filipino coconut and Ecuadorian mangoes and Washington cherries. Those were the, the flavors of the of the yogurt. And the story on it was basically about this is yogurt that's been handcrafted since blah blah blah. You know, in Montreal and the whole story and no evidence that it's not owned and you know independent with Liberty yogurt. And when you scan it, it it's totally General Mills. It's been bought twice. So by, by Yoplait, I think initially, and then by General Mills. So anyways, um, this is this really neat app that allows you to sort of dig into understanding where stuff is coming from. And I think it's going to be more and more important because I don't know if you've ever looked at a Scharfenberger bar, but you know, the, the way that that's sort of covered up as well, that it's bought by Hershey's is by creating a new company called Artisan Confections Company. And they um, and then they have Scharfenberger under that company. So it's not obviously a Hershey's owned company. Um, anyway, I I definitely find that interesting because it's the, the way that we're layering, we're understanding that customers want, we being like the market understands that customers want some transparency or they want to know that they're buying something that might be closer to you know, made in the USA by a small company or something like that. And so all the big companies are learning how to better trick people into feeling good about the food that they're buying, um, which, you know, I always look at in a positive way because it means that it shows that customers care if the big guys are switching their tactics to be more clever in making people feel good about um, the food that they're buying. Right. So just touching on a little bit of what we talked about last episode when I was talking about dandelion. One of the things that I thought was interesting, though, again, at Northwest, seeing that they had some of their offerings that they've roasted in their factory in Tokyo. I believe it's Tokyo. Mm -hmm. So they set up a new facility with new roasting, but they have different styles of appreciation for chocolate. So the bars were, I don't remember if they were different percentages, which they probably were, but 
I'm assuming differences in texture and whatnot too. And so now the reason I bring that up and then you're talking about Swiss chocolate and most of our other conversations, a lot of them are talking about U.S. chocolate makers. And it just has me wondering, um, maybe not even wondering, just thinking about one of, one of the things that I find interesting in the different uh, roasts or bars that Dandelion makes at their different factories and any other instances like this is being able to understand because this is this is something that I was trying to do with coffee as well for a period of time I would try to order a lot of coffee from international roasters to try and get a sense of what roasting style was like or how they might brew their coffee what kind of water they're using for their coffee and I kind of get curious about that with chocolate too because there might be listeners here who who aren't from the U.S. and so it might be not as easy for them to get their hands on bars from the U.S. so they might not actually know a lot of what we're running into and it just had me thinking about chocolate on a on a more worldly level right and I think about that sometimes in the conversation that most of what we're talking about are chocolate bars right and that's become very trendy for bars to be in or chocolate to be in bar form but I don't think that should necessarily discredit especially as somebody who is consuming chocolate from the U.S. makers not from the U.S. or products that are not necessarily in bar form this is getting like way there's like a, a ton of pieces to this whole thing but that's just what was on my that was just what was on my mind in that moment is thinking about you were talking about there is not necessarily a lot of kind of the newer chocolate going on in Switzerland yet there's a deep history and I find that quite uh, fascinating and interesting that you and other people are going to be experiencing that or if someone were to try a milk boy or a something else more swiss chocolate to just be able to understand some of how chocolate is being done more than just in a tiny little bubble anyway <laughs> that's what was on my mind so by tiny little bubble you're talking about the the craft chocolate bubble yeah pretty much mm-hmm. and again i mean so so like you know it's it's e- so when I was recently in Panama, part of what we were there for, or there during, I should say, was the Best of Panama auction. So well, it wasn't the auction; it was, it was the where they were selecting the coffees and and ranking them or whatever. The auction's coming up very soon, but you know there are a lot of coffees being produced in Panama, and not all of them are sold to U.S. roasters. So I have access mostly to those that are in the the U.S., but some of the coffees, a lot of the coffees, and a lot of the top-scoring ones are sold to other places in the world. So why would I not think that could also be done in all other industries, too? Take, for example, we've talked about Smooth Chocolator a couple of times also. It's a maker out of Australia, right? So this is... Somebody who's making, so even in, even in the craft chocolate bubble, though, you have someone who is outside of the U.S. making chocolate with origins that people inside the U.S. also make. Soma, for example, which is not too, too far away, but not necessarily in the States, right? Or getting to chocolate makers in, uh, in the U.K. or you know, someone in Germany or does this make sense at all? I usually describe it as, you know, there was a, there was a part of the world where, and Soma kind of, um, not Soma kind of breaks the rule in this, but because Soma has been making chocolate for so long, but in the United States, if you look at the U S there was Scherfenberger and then 
a lot of the early makers, like the the founding, you know, craft chocolate makers of America, um, those makers were the ones who kind of had a light bulb turned on when they tasted Scharfenberger, and all of a sudden, it occurred to them that there could be this this other thing, this category of chocolate that was, you know, higher quality and um, and and different from the candy bars that they had been growing up with, and so then. You know, and I sort of, this is my theory, it's not researched, it just sort of seems to make sense to me that, you know, there was such such a, a low bar here and so little good chocolate available in the United States that there it was ripe for all this innovation to occur, for there to be a real desire and this sort of, you know, bunch of entrepreneurs to just sort of start playing with cacao and start making chocolate. And, and, and that really took off over a period of five to 10 years. And now we're starting to see um, I don't mean mimickers, but that's the word that comes up to me. It's like people are like, oh my gosh, look at this, you know, people playing with cacao, sourcing directly from origin and starting. And I might be wrong because I may not, I have not been paying attention that much to everything going on in Europe and in other parts of the, you know, even in growing countries in the global South, you know, have people been making bean to bar for some time there. Um, it's not really been accessible to me. And what I've seen when I went to Ecuador and I was eating, you know, chocolate was basically American candy that was being sold there. Maybe there was a maker or five in Quito that were doing sort of small batch, really great chocolate 10, 15 years ago. I'm not sure. Um, but it seems to me that that's, we've, we've sort of like the, the model got established. There's enough traction and interest in this whole, it's part of this larger food revolution in the United States that occurred. And now many other countries are kind of, so the funny thing is that you know, Europe is is coming on board and starting to do bean to bar, um, but it's not it's not like they're coming from a place where there's no good quality chocolate. Um, like you mentioned, for example, we're talking mostly about bars, but confectionery. There's amazing confectionery in in Europe. When you go to France or you go to um, even Switzerland, you know, there's these local chocolatiers everywhere. Certainly in Switzerland, in every town, there's a few where you go and you can get. Um, you know, you can get confections, obviously, but you also can get like bark, I suppose you can call it like these sheets of chocolate that have maybe pink peppercorn added on them. And that's not new, you know, so the playing around with chocolate and flavors and beautiful ganaches um, has existed, but, but, but suddenly um, folks are starting to look deeper than that and start thinking about, oh, well, can I actually make the chocolate as well? So I don't know where I'm going with that other than I think it, it 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 definitely is exciting and interesting. And at, back to your point of what's going on in Japan with Dandelion opening up another store there, and especially because, as we mentioned in the last episode, Dandelion takes a particular approach to making chocolate. I mean, they're very technical in many ways. I would say they're you know they're they're ex techies who are like well you know you you look at the variables and you produce things made with you know variations on a couple of different things and you taste them and you figure out what's best and then that's what you make so if you move to japan then the way you would do that is repeat it with people who live in japan and who have different tastes and eat different foods for the most part than than we might or um the baseline food is different and see what people like and so it totally makes sense i mean um that dandelion adapted their um you know, the way that they're making chocolate for, for that market. But is that not super, super fascinating? Which part? Just, I just, just that that takes place. So, and I think part of the reason why I was, I had gone out when I had mentioned all that to begin with it and with you saying, you know, confectionery and stuff has been around for a long time. That's, that's true. But I think, and th this actually wraps into a lot of things. This goes into reviewers that we were talking about earlier on or even last episode when we were talking about makers and their limited scope as they come into it and thus they take something and they say this is what you know this is what craft chocolate is going to be all of these things we've talked about kind of lately are kind of wrapped up in into the why I think it's interesting just in general because there is there is a history of things beyond bean to bar chocolate and in a in a bar form emphasizing the bar of that and i think 
if somebody is interested in chocolate, that it's really fascinating to know or to have experience with those things. You know, like the, a lot of the reviewers, not not nagging in, on any of them, but if these reviewers only, if they're talking, if they're talking on a t- on a level, and they're gauging chocolate principles without necessarily knowing the full scope because their limit is only primarily on US chocolate makers is that you know that's kind of that's that's skewed in some way i don't know maybe what i'm saying isn't making sense maybe i'm not saying everything right are you saying that um so what comes to mind is thinking when uh, somebody in the United States decides to make chocolate and they go and they taste, you know, five to 10 different small makers that they find at their local store or at their local specialty shop. Um, and then they don't actually taste any like Valrona, Cluizel, Amade, Demori. Um, then their only reference point to making chocolate is whatever they picked up locally in the United States, you know, newest makers that are the most widely available. Um, is that what you mean? Like, so they're totally missing. And I just threw out a bunch of names that actually have been making really good chocolate for a long time. So it kind of breaks the right. overall rule. Um, uh, right. And, and less, less actually, t- in, that is absolutely correct, but less on the side of, you know, ne- of the negatives necessarily for someone who, who doesn't, as much as I was just thinking of how, interesting it is when one is able to learn more wholeness to the whole thing right um i mean cuz you yeah just just being able to experience more than than what is immediately accessible or you know even some of those makers here talking about are easily accessible in the states to some degree but being able to understand more than just what uh, gosh I, I'm doing such a poor job <laughs> explaining this so so I have to try and de- go back to to it in coffee again so one thing I found interesting too gets it gets a little scientific a little bit I won't get too too much but it seems like different regions who are making sp- craft coffee, specialty coffee right now too, they have different parameters of strength of coffee that they prefer. So in coffee, uh, will determine extraction and part of an element that you can use to determine that is the total dissolved solids of coffee particles in any given, in a given, uh, sample of coffee. And you can use that number combined with your variables that you've used, how much coffee you've used, how much water you've used to try and figure out extraction. And the U.S. kind of has a pocket of what we like, but other countries might have a different pocket. It might be higher. It might be lower. This has to do with how they're roasting. This has to do with the water that they're using and how it aids or doesn't aid in extracting coffee. But beyond that, there are some kind of going into last episode too about lighter roasted coffees. There are some places that just roast significantly lighter and to the point where it doesn't, it didn't even seem like it was as accessible to find that in the States. And I specifically, I was saying this a little bit earlier, I was specifically seeking that out to try and buy, bring in, brew to get an understanding of that. And I think that, I mean, I haven't won anything in in competition, but I feel like if you're in a, if you're going in competition to something that does end up moving to the steps of competing on a worldly level, you compete for the U S the whenever the U S goes on with people who have won in their given countries to complete compete for the worlds and the judges that they're going to have, ideally are going to judge on this global, this this worldly scale, not necessarily on the scale from Norway or not necessarily on the scale from 
France, not necessarily on a scale from the U.S. That it's going to be this more global understanding of coffee. But if I only brewed and drank, let's say, medium roast coffee at X percent strength, regardless of my opinion of it being good or not good, I would only have that understanding and not this bigger picture of what other places are doing and drinking, understanding to know about coffee. So I guess that's where I was. That's just what was on my mind in regards to, to chocolate, too, kind of in that conversation is just understanding the history of chocolate in Swiss. What what is that? What is what are the what are main components of that or characteristics of that or styles of that? What what are the different eating styles, sweetness styles, texture styles from more places than just the U.S.? Just and this has nothing necessarily to do with knowing this information to go out and be a maker of. It's mainly just as a consumer, something that's intriguing to know and would kind of grow my enjoyment or um, you know, knowledge, taste for chocolate. Anyway. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no, I think it is really interesting. And, and a lot of things come up when you're talking about that, because, you know, in some ways I want to say, and this is not exactly you, you're talking about being a, about being a customer, but from the point of view of a chocolate maker, I think that having a point of view yourself as to what is delicious um, and what you're trying to achieve um, rather than, you know, like having that be what drives it. And then, you know, if, if it so happens that that meets your market and that people like your chocolate, then great. Rather than, um, you know, the other strategy that we've sort of talked about that, that is, a, is a, a very practical one and, and a, you know, one that is, um, can have success, especially if you're moving around to very different markets like Dandelion and, and opening up a store in Japan, is to figure out what that market is interested in and to produce what makes sense for that market. And it's kind of an interesting question because, of course, big, big companies do that all the time. You know, the different formulations for something as common as a Coca-Cola, right? And how sweet it is and even, well, what sugars get used locally to make the, the drink. Um, those differ between different places because they're responding to the market and it does better when it's sweeter or less sweet, depending on where you're selling it. But then there's, you know, the other thing that comes up is, the, uh, gosh, a couple of years back, I was visiting family in Switzerland and I went to the local, you know, the kind of Safeway. There's two, two sort of two, three main stores like that in Switzerland, the grocery store, and you go to the chocolate section. And I remember finding, I was shocked in in two ways. You know, there was there was this bar that was just, I think it was like 500 grams. It was a humongous bar. It was a tremendous amount of chocolate. And it was like three or four francs, which is like, you know, about three, four dollars for like 500 grams of chocolate, which is 100 grams is probably like three ounces or something like that. I'm, I'm really rounding a lot because I don't, I don't translate well between mm -hmm. grams and ounces. I'm still stuck in grams um, where I'll stay. Um, so it was an incredible amount of chocolate for very, very little money. That was the first thing that really was surprising to me. And then when I looked to try to find the darkest chocolate possible, the one I recognized, I, I think it's um, uh, Frey, Frey, I don't know how to say it. It's a Swiss German, I think, F-R-E-Y. Um, it's a particular brand in Switzerland that's pretty famous. And it, there's this silver and blue packaging that I know is like the super, super dark one. And I was curious because now, you know, been in chocolate for some time and I was suddenly looking at Swiss chocolate. And I think it was like 55 or 65%. And it was their super dark, like almost had danger signs on it <laughs> in terms of how dark it was, which was astonishing to me. So I, I say that just to point out in terms of what the Swiss are used to and what they like, like if I look at what my relatives eat in Switzerland, um, it's definitely very a uh, much more on the sweeter side very very cocoa buttery so there's lots of cocoa butter added um and and the milk chocolates are delightful i mean the swiss know how to make wonderful milk chocolate but by our standards especially now with my new favorite category being dark milks they're tremendously sweet um so 
in general, the darks and the milks are much more on the sweet side and lots of butter. And then, of course, there's the classic things you add, like roasted hazelnuts and various stuffings in the chocolate um, that you can get. So they can be, I guess, stuff. Stuffing is the word. I'm thinking of fourré in French, and I can't think of what that is in English, but I think it just means stuffing. Um, so when I've brought you know, happy chocolate to Switzerland to my relatives and gifted it to them or done little tastings or whatever, they're usually intrigued by it. And they'll be like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, there's there's a lot happening in that. Like they're kind of shocked by how much flavor is happening, which is not surprising since think of lint, 70% or something like that. There's not a whole lot going on in there flavor-wise. And they're intrigued by it, but they're not necessarily that into having more of it. Like it doesn't hit, they're so used to a blander, smoother, sweet, creamy kind of docile experience with chocolate in general, um, that this new sort of chocolate is a little bit, it's just almost like it's too much. It's its too loud or it's too, um, yeah, it's got too much going on. Anyway, that's just sort of a reflection of um, my impression of what, you know, what people's tastes are like in, in Switzerland, relatives of mine, you know, maybe going back five years, um, but generally what's available on the market. And more recently starting to see big companies do the single origin thing, you know, so it's not just percentage anymore. It's that this is a bean from Madagascar. And um, I'm sure that it's similar to, more similar to a Bonat or Palu. Um, in that there's probably 15, 20% cocoa butter added. And so there are there are differences, but in general, it's it's a more subtle, nuanced, very much about mouthfeel and, and wonderful creaminess kind of experience than the kind of experience we're, we're used to here in the United States with the, the more intense flavors. So one of, one of the other things that came up for me as you were talking about that is that if you think of micro brews um it's not like this is a new category like it's a new phenomenon in the united states to see this happening new ish like past few decades right where we have just so many microbrew local stuff going on it's been going on for so long now that the big companies are now buying up these small companies right but it's not new because wherever you know originally beer was being consumed you know and i'm i'm imagining mostly like having local small microbreweries in Europe, that has been for a really, really long time, right? Wine is the same thing. Um, I, don't, I don't know so much about coffee, but I'm thinking if you look at, it's not like, so the United States microbrew has become um, a new phenomenon, but it's not like it was a new category. If anything, you could say that the US brewers maybe you know, on a trip to Europe, we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is so much better than the stuff we have at home. Let's do something like this there, right? Um, but for cacao, if you look at, did we have any places that were really celebrating cacao? Um, and, and if you, I think you could say that thousands of years ago, yes, like when cacao played, was not chocolate as we know it, there was lots of domestication and hybridization going on and a lot of focus on getting certain um um, what's the word, uh, features of the cacao to be emphasized. So theobromine content or like reducing bitterness so that you, you know, so to be more delicious and not be as hard to drink. Um, but barring looking at that time, which is so long ago, and looking at our more recent, you know, um, history, cacao has always existed in terms of chocolate as something that was I think pretty low quality, not a lot of focus on fermentation, not a lot of flavor, industrially made. Um, even like the local stuff we saw in Europe was more at the confectionery level, but the chocolate makers were, were seemed pretty big. Um, and I imagine there was some consolidation that went on to, to end up with so few very, very large chocolate makers. But it is kind of a new phenomenon, unlike beer or wine or cheeses or, you know, because that, that stuff existed before. Um, and I guess it makes sense and maybe there's parallels in coffee, but, you know, cacao grows in the global south and we're eating it mostly up here and, you know, in, in the north and the industrialized um, countries. And so I wonder if there's um, a parallel there with coffee, but it, it, um, it's different from some of these other foods that have had their little renaissances in the United States. Mm -hmm. 